0: We're now going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together. So we've been going through this series in First Corinthians, the middle section, verses five or chapters five through ten. We've called it the messed up church, the messed up church. And what I've been trying to challenge you and, and challenge myself with is, it'd be easy for us to look at the church in Corinth and say, "Man, they are messed up, right? It's a it's a dumpster fire. It's a train wreck. It's so horrible. Look at them. I'm glad we have our stuff together, right?" Um, but what we've said is, you know what? We're, we're just as messed up, right? Modern church has all the same problems that they had in Corinth, greed, divisiveness, sexual immorality. We struggle with these same things. We, we drift from Jesus and we begin to, to go back to our old ways. So Paul's been challenging them and us to continue to run after Jesus. So here we are in chapter 10. We're finishing up this series today and next week. So two more weeks in this series, chapter 10, and we're gonna call it this week, Run for Your Life. Run for your life, okay? I hope that sounds extreme because it is. Run for your life. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses one through 15. We'll finish up the chapter next week before we go into a Christmas series then for the end of November and December. Run for your life. Again and again, we're challenged that Jesus is our only hope and all these other false saviors that, that we've wanted to find salvation in, they're not actually gonna save us so as we think about the metaphor of, of running, I recognize, man, we all have different relationships with running and, and good health. Um, I, I don't love running, but I've generally been a person that's tried to exercise, right? Um, I've generally tried to exercise throughout my life. Um, and I wanna tell you a little story about a time that my wife and I went hiking when I was about 43 years old. I'm way older than that now. So when I was about 43 years old, we went hiking to the Grand Canyon. Um, and I had just recovered from a broken ankle. And we were hiking the Grand Canyon, which now looking back doesn't seem like the smartest thing. But again, kind of a life, a lifetime of being generally in shape. I was like, I can handle this. I'm a man. You know, this will be great. And so we're hiking. And one of the ways that the Grand Canyon tricks you is, number one, it's so gorgeous. You're just like, you're overwhelmed and you lose all, all you know, rational thinking because it's just so beautiful, right? So there you are, you're just checking it out. It's so big, it's so majestic, it's so beautiful. you're like, okay, let's hike down into it, right? I wanna become one with the Grand Canyon. So we're gonna hike down into the Grand Canyon, but it's cool up at the top, right? It's kind of like mountain elevation at the top, and then it's like Death Valley at the bottom. So we're, and we're there in the summer. So we're hiking from the top to the bottom. I just recovered from a broken ankle, so I hadn't worked out in like two months. Possibly the worst shape in my life at least pretty bad shape, and I'm middle-aged, right? And my wife's in great shape, like she's running all the time. She's like, I'm trying to keep up my w- with my wife, and it just keeps getting hotter and hotter as we go down. <laughs> hotter and hotter and hotter, and, and we had we brought water and all that, but it just wasn't, it wasn't quite enough. And finally had the guts to admit, like, uh, I don't think I'm doing very well, and I think a couple times she was like, you're really red, you know? Like... <laughs> This is not what you normally look like when you exercise. I started to realize that some heat exhaustion was setting in and that I, it was getting dangerous. And they have these like, you know, volunteer park rangers that cruise around with extra water. And they have like little spray bottles and fans. And so these 75-year-old junior park rangers had to like tell me to sit down while they held an umbrella over me and they sprayed my hot red face with water. They offered me more water to drink. They're like, you need to rest. You need to cool off. You need to settle down. And I, I was thinking about that because I was like, I think that's, that's the general bent of how we do church, right? And even our call to worship for the month of November has been from Matthew 11, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, what Jesus is saying there is, you've been trying to live life on your own and it is not working, it is killing you. Come to me, I will revive your hearts. And so what I want you to understand is we're, we're still saying that, even as we say, run for your life, <laughs> run for your life. And so preachers are often taught this. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but preachers are told this, that a preacher's job is to do two things at the same time. I'm supposed to simultaneously comfort the afflicted. And like I just said, I tend to lean that way, right? You need to rest. Let me spray your face with some water. Here's a cool cup of cold water. You need Jesus, right? That tends to be my temperament. But a preacher is also supposed to afflict the comfortable. A preacher is also supposed to afflict the comfortable, and that's actually what our passage is doing this week. This week, the passage is like, you're getting complacent, Like you think just because you prayed some prayer and told Jesus you loved him that you can now dabble in idolatry, but it's gonna kill you. You need to run for your life. You need to run from that. And it reminds me more of the hard news that I was given another time in my life. So I promise we're actually gonna read the text. But one more story, one more story. When I was 30, we just had our third child. We just moved back to Temple. We'd been back in uh, Temple after going to seminary in St. Louis. We'd been back in central Texas for a couple of years, working on staff at another church. Um, And our little kid, our little third child, she didn't really sleep. I don't know if y'all ever have a baby like that. So this kid wouldn't sleep. And so I was tired and we were remodeling a house and I just, I didn't have time for exercising at that point in my life, right? So like a year or two of not really exercising, eating complete junk food. And I went in for a checkup to the doctor and guess what the doctor told me? The doctor said, you need to run. Like, this is ridiculous, Dave. You used to be in good shape, and now you're in bad shape. And it's starting to show up in your blood, doing these tests, your cholesterol's looking bad. If you don't get your health under control, it's going to kill you. And so I don't know where you are. I don't want to overuse the run metaphor, but here's the thing. If you're worn out by trying to save yourself, Jesus says, come to me and rest. But if you're complacent and you're dabbling in old sins, in sexual immorality, in greed and divisiveness, and all these things that the Corinthians have been struggling with, Paul's gonna say to you, run. It's gonna kill you. This is serious. Don't be complacent, but run to Jesus because Jesus is your only hope. I hope you see in both stories, Jesus is the answer. So let's read 1 Corinthians. Again, we're in chapter 10, uh, The Black Bibles, it should be page 957, page 957, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15, and the next week we'll finish out the chapter. Starting in verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses and into the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, On whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. He's going to get into more details next week. We'll cover that again, but here's the big idea of verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, I love you guys. Paul's saying this to the Corinthians. I'm saying this to you. I love you. Some of you I know better than others. Some of you I just met today. I love you. Flee from idolatry. An idol is a false god that we've set up when we've said, this can save me. Money can save me. Comfort can save me. Being my true self can save me. Financial stability can save me. Paul says, run, run for your life. Only Jesus can save you. Let me pray for us and ask him to meet us here. God, thank you that you speak to us with power, with authority, with relevance as as we read your word, as we listen to it by faith. We pray that you would awaken our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would meet with us in a supernatural way, that we wouldn't just have a, an informational lecture, but we'd have an experience of the living God, that the true rock of stability would meet us here this morning. Father, help us open our our eyes and ears, our, our hearts, our minds to you. Speak to us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So again, the gospel comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. And most of this is about afflicting the comfortable. Most of this is like, watch out, run, run, flee from idolatry. Don't dabble in idolatry. Don't think, oh, well, we're smarter than other people, right? That's been a, a theme throughout 1 Corinthians. It's like, oh, we're, we're cool. We got Jesus. So we, can, we can goof off and dabble in immorality now. It's, it's no big deal because we got fire insurance. Like, Jesus has got us. We're fine. He's like, hey, remember in the Old Testament, that attitude did not go well for people. Do not let yourself be complacent they fell into complacency. They thought, oh yeah, everything's fine. It doesn't really matter what we do. Jesus just wants mental assent. He doesn't actually want our heart. Paul says, no, run, run to Jesus. And again, in context, last week, the end of chapter nine, if you weren't here, you can look back at it on your own time, but at the end of chapter nine, Paul's like, no, I'm desperately fighting and striving and straining and pursuing Jesus. And we said last week, and I'm gonna say again this week, not to get Jesus to wake up to how awesome I am and how well I'm running. No, I'm running to Jesus because Jesus has taken hold of me. He says this explicitly in Philippians 3. It's kind of parallel concepts that Paul uses there. He says, I'm running after him to take hold of the prize of union with Christ because Jesus has first taken hold of me. And so we've got to, we've kind of lay that foundation again. No, Jesus died for you first. That's why you run after Jesus. He didn't wait for you to run perfectly or to clean up your act, but he ran after you. So now we're gonna run for our lives. We're gonna pursue Jesus. Three-point outline here as we move through the text. Number one, the wonder of Jesus makes us run. That's that foundation I was just referring to. The wonder of Jesus, the amazing things that Jesus has done for us, that makes us run. It's just artillery. We'll all be fine if you hear the noise. (laughs) Thank you, Fort Hood. Usually I just hear it at night when I'm trying to go to bed but it's, it's unusual to hear it during the sermon. Okay, so the wonder of Jesus makes us run. The second point is we have to learn to run. It's a process, right? I, I kind of alluded to this earlier. I, I didn't just naturally love running. Well, I mean, I loved running when I was eight, right? But as I got older, it's not as fun. You have to learn healthy habits, right? You have to learn to run. We, we often want the wrong things. We have to learn to run. And then third thing, our coach will help us run. We have a coach. Not like that mean coach you had in junior high. We have the best coach you could ever have. And he's going to help us, okay? So number one, the wonder of Jesus makes us run. We see this in verses one through five. 1 Corinthians 10, one through five. The wonder of Jesus makes us run. Two key things here. I want to pull out of the text. I'm going to read all of them, but just two key things to, to look for. In verse one, he's going to say, I don't want you to be unaware. So what he's saying is don't miss this. This is important. So don't miss the overall stretch of where he's going with these five verses, but also don't miss the last thing that he says, which is the rock of stability and salvation is Christ. So he's gonna draw a line from the Old Testament to the new. God is always saving us through Christ. He's always our hope. So verse one, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. This could be translated in the Greek as ignorant. Don't be ignorant, brothers. Don't be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What what is he talking about here? He's talking about the exodus, the salvation of God's people in the Old Testament. This salvation was the central event that pointed that God is a God that we can trust, that although we were rebellious and although the people of God uh, were not faithful to God. He heard their groaning. He saw their slavery in Egypt. He saw that they were bound and they were being mistreated and being oppressed. And he said, I will save my people. I'm gonna remember the gracious covenant of promise that I made to save a people for myself. And now I'm gonna go back and do it. And so in the New Testament, we look back and say, how do we know that God is a saving God, that he's a gracious God? We look back to the cross and resurrection. Because through the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself. Through his resurrection, he proved that he's conquered sin and death once and for all. So we have this central event that's like the hinge of all history. And we look back on this and say, this is how we know that God is saving. Well, in the Old Testament, the cross had not happened yet. And they had a central event that they would look back to again and again. They'd, they'd sing songs about it. They'd write prophecies about it. They would celebrate this event again and again in the Passover. And it was when God brought his people out of Egypt in the Exodus. That was the central saving event of God in the Old Testament. And again and again, the Old and the New Testament, they're hyperlinked together. And Paul and the other New Testament writers are always saying, yeah, the, the cross and resurrection is the New Testament exodus. That's how we are brought out of our bondage, our slavery to sin and to oppression is through Christ's work. And so Paul's saying, okay, let's look back a little bit at the, at the Old Testament salvation, at the exodus. And he's like, don't you know that they were all a part of that? They were there. They saw it, they felt it, they were identified with it, right? He's like, that cloud gave them shade, right? This cloud led them during the day, it gave them shade in the desert. That fire gave them light at night. That red sea, it was parted for all of them. they passed through those waters of chaos that now we symbolize in baptism as we're saved through the waters of sin and death and destruction as we entrust ourselves to Jesus. And so there are all these symbols that, that are repeated from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And they're all layer upon layer. And we're supposed to look back and say, oh, okay, God was doing the same kind of thing back then that he's doing now. He's always been a gracious saving God. Paul's like, I don't want you to be unaware. Yeah, God's always been saving and gracious. And people have always been missing it. And so our Old Testament forefathers, they were there. Like they came to church and they sang the songs, but, but somehow they missed Jesus. Jesus. Like I went to camp and I cried and I gave my life to Jesus and then I just went right back to my old sins. And I said, no, these other sins will save me. I was just giving my mental assent to Jesus, but Jesus doesn't actually have my heart. You know what has my heart are these old sins. That's what I'm trusting in. Those are the things that I think will save me. And, and so we're challenged here to say, if, if you actually love the sin more than Jesus, do you even love Jesus? Are you trusting him? I said, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that this, this same kind of problem happened in the past and it's, it's still happening today. We can be around the corporate saving action of God and his church with his people in the Old Testament through the Exodus people. They were, they were brought out of slavery and then they rebelled. And he's like, and they fell, they were overthrown. It says, they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ, <laughs> He's like, hey, it's not just an analogy. It's not just like, hey, God saved some people and they rejected him in the Old Testament. He's like, Christ was there, right? (laughs) It was Jesus. And they they still rejected him. Verse five says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Scary stories from the Old Testament. People were saved miraculously. They saw God do miracle after miracle, after miracle, in Egypt, out of Egypt, in the desert, beginning, middle, end. They kept seeing the grace of God. He's like, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, like they were. How are we unaware of the presence of Christ when Christ is there? I think the scripture is pretty clear that we close our eyes to it. They we're like, yeah, I see what Jesus is doing, but I, don't, I prefer this over here. And we, we close our eyes. Romans 1 talks about this, we see creation, we're like, man, creation's so cool, but you know what, I'm not, I'm not gonna give God credit for that. I'm gonna give myself credit and I'm gonna give some other power credit and we turn our hearts towards idolatry. And so there's this darkening of our hearts that Colossians talks about and Romans talks about where we, we just, again and again, close our eyes to God's saving work in the world, his creative work in the world. Grabbed a picture here, someone closing their eyes and I, I wanna ask you, like, what is it you're, you're doing that could be closing your eyes to the closeness of Jesus, to Jesus being your rock. He's referencing these stories in the Old Testament, uh, Exodus 17, other places where Moses strikes a rock and water gushes out, right? There's this kind of specific, beautiful saving events where Yahweh, Jesus, God, makes his presence known in this stone and says, hey, I'm, I'm here for you. I'm providing for you. Some strange, miraculous stories. Paul's clarifying here. He's He's talking about the spiritual presence of God with them. So we don't wanna get lost too much in the weeds of like, how does a rock follow them around in the desert? You know, like, how does that work? How does a rock follow? I don't think we've got like a physical rock following them through the desert. The Jews actually got sidetracked and made up some weird cartoon stories about it. So just so you know, there's weirdness there and some legends and stuff about this that came up after the scriptures and later. But here's Paul Paul's saying, well, they drank a, a spiritual drink. Was there a physical drink? Yes, there's a physical drink there, but spiritually God was providing for them, right? So were there real historical things that happened? Yes, absolutely. Real water came out of the rock. Real quail and manna was fed to them, right? God really saved them physically. But he's, seeing, he's saying, but God also was spiritually present with them. And they, they pushed him aside. It's like, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to cover your eyes to God's saving presence with you. So here, just as an aside, I want to clarify, at, at our church, Christians, Christians wrestle through these kinds of texts in different ways, right? Some Christians would say, okay, so you can, you can be uh, saved and then unsaved, right? That's how some people deal with these kinds of warning passages that are like, hey, don't mess up like those people did. I, I wouldn't say that. Again, we're, we welcome you, however you sort out the most difficult theological confusions in history. We're glad you're here. You know, we're all like wrestling with these hard texts. I would say that if you're really saved, as Jesus says in John chapter 10, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. I think that's very clear. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Romans 8, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 1, he says, God's gonna finish what he started in your life. So, so I really believe that, that nothing can, can pull us away from Jesus, but I also believe we can kind of be around it and we can kind of taste it and smell it and maybe assent to it, maybe go through the motions, maybe participate in the sacraments, some traditions call them, or the ordinances, maybe do the corporate life of God's saved people with other saved people, and yet not really get it, not really see Jesus present with us. And I think that's the real warning here. Not that we could be like saved and unsaved and saved and unsaved. No, I think, I think the warning here is you can, you can be peripherally involved and really you're still, you're still running to these other saviors. And he says, run, run for your life. And it's the wonder of Jesus and his grace for you that really is gonna motivate that. The amazement of his kindness to us. So the big question I have is what, what can we do to be more awake less unaware, right? Like not avoiding it, but, but more awake and alive to what Jesus is doing, how he's providing for us, how he's giving himself for us. There's two ways to look back at the old, these Old Testament stories. One way is to look back at these Old Testament stories and say, man, God provided for his people. Isn't God good? Isn't he gracious? Another way to look back at these Old Testament stories is to be like, man, why, why'd God do that, right? Like, wouldn't they have preferred him to do this other thing? And that's what the people... That's what the people were saying. They were like, oh, we don't know if we can trust you. Jesus, we're called to trust him, to, to wonder at his provision for us in Christ. What are some ways that as you come to worship, you can make it about Jesus and not about just going through the motions with the people of God? How can you really see that the rock is Christ, that your provision is Christ, that Jesus is the one that gave himself for you? He, he lived the perfect life you couldn't live. He died the sacrificial death that you and I deserve to die. He rose from the dead. How can we continue to look to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, you're, you're the one, you're my hope. You're the one that's stirring in me this desire to run after you. Again, Philippians 3 says it this way. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Philippians is saying, Paul's using parallel language over there in Philippians 3. I'm running this race, right? I'm, I'm straining, I'm striving. Why? because Jesus has made me his own. Jesus didn't wait for you to clean up your life, to never fall, to never stumble, to never grumble. He didn't say, okay, when you get it all together, then when you've run really hard, then maybe I'll love you. No, Romans says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see that? Are you falling for this false thinking that not only can maybe sexual immorality or greed or divisiveness or money, can these things save me? But I'm also following for this other false gospel that maybe obedience can save me. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying he saves you. And because he saves you, you're now gonna begin taking next steps of pursuing him. The wonder of Jesus propels us to chase after him. So point two, we have to learn then to run. And this is a process so it's the wonder of Jesus that awakens our heart. It's the wonder of Jesus that propels us to run after him, right? I'm trying to take hold of that prize because Jesus has taken hold of me. And he's gonna go on here and it's gonna get worse in the Old Testament story in verse six. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And I don't know if you recognize when I read it the first time, there's this as they did, as some of them did. There's this like, Repetition, this chorus that he lays down again and again, he's like, wake up, wake up, wake up, pay attention, pay attention, we have to learn to walk in a new way. Now these things took place as examples for us. That word example is gonna come back again twice in this little section. Uh, It's the Greek word type or tupos. We have a theological term, typology. Anybody heard the term typology before? A couple of you, thank you. Some theologians in the room. Typology is like it's like patternology, you might say. Uh, the idea is this example, this pattern, this type is God saves in this way. And then we see that fulfilled in this type in the New Testament, which is Jesus. He's the greater fulfillment. So typology is just the laying down of these patterns, right? Like, oh, I see this chorus and now I hear it. You know, it's like theme and variation. Okay, I hear this echo and now it's even better. Now it's getting fuller, it's getting richer, right? So we have kings in the Old Testament, but they fail. Then we have this ultimate King Jesus. King Jesus rules and reigns in perfection and he lays down his life for us. We have this concept of prophets. They speak the word of God, but you know, a lot of them messed up and they did dumb things. We have Jesus who speaks the word of God. He is the word of God. We have this picture of a saving out of slavery and bondage in the Old Testament. And Jesus saves us out of ultimate slavery, ultimate bondage in the New Testament. So typology is merely these patterns, these examples that get played out even better in Jesus. And so Paul's taking us there and he's reiterating that this is so that we will not desire evil as they did. The word uh, desire often used in the New Testament is this word epithumia, and it can be translated also as over-desire. It's this kind of insistence that we make where we say, I must have this, right? To be like, that's great, Jesus, that you wanna save me, but if I don't have money, I have no life. That's an over-desire. That's falling into idolatry. Jesus, that's great that you say you'll save me, but if I don't have a man or a woman, I can't be fulfilled. Jesus, that's great that you say that you will save me, but if I don't enjoy pleasure in the way that I want to enjoy pleasure, then I don't care about your salvation. That over-desire is turning towards these false gods and saying, these things will actually save me. That's nice news that you have for me, Jesus, but this is better news. Paul's saying, we don't want you to desire evil as they did. There's There's a fundamental confusion in our culture right now. And this is, if we have a desire, it must be good. It's a very simple, logical problem. In real life, it's painful. I find it in my heart. You find it in your heart. It's painful to work that out. It's hard. But we have to learn to run towards the right things. We have to be retrained. We don't just naturally come out loving the right things. All the things we love are not the right things to love. There are things that we want that are bad. I have an illustration of this um, Those of you that have a salt grinder, you might think this is salt, but this is actually, can you show this picture? I've got uh, crystal meth. Um, And crystal meth is incredibly addictive, from what I understand. I think that's why it's hard to buy Sudafed. Somehow you can make it out of Sudafed, I guess. I don't know. Um, It's incredibly addictive. And I wanted to show these before and after pictures, but I just thought it was too much. Um, But you've probably seen these on the internet, these before and after pictures of people that have been addicted to meth and you know, they look great and healthy and vivacious. And then after using meth for a while, their, their body's broken down and you can just see a, a very dramatic change. Um, meth, if you don't understand, the reason that people use it is not because they're like, oh, I want to destroy my body. That's not why people use it. You know why they use it? Because it feels awesome. Like we have to reckon with that. There are things in this universe that feel awesome and kill us. And you can gripe at God like, that's not fair. You know, I'm like, I don't really have time for that argument. We just live in this kind of universe. There are things in this universe that will kill us and we have to be retrained. We have to be taught like, oh, this looks good. This tastes good. This feels good. Oh, but it's a slow poison. And the scriptures again and again are saying, no, these things that you're attracted to, they, they feel good. There's a temporary high. There's a buzz That comes along with greed. There's a buzz that comes along with sexual immorality. There's a buzz that comes along with all these other false saviors, but they're actually going to kill you in the long run. Only Jesus will save you. We have to learn to run to Jesus. It's an ongoing process. He says, these examples are so that we might not desire evil, want the wrong things as they did. Verse seven, don't be idolaters as some of them were. Don't, Don't worship the false gods, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and then rose up to play. This is not play like they played a board game. This is actually a euphemism for engaging in in, uh, extreme sexual immorality. Verse eight, just to clarify it, in case you didn't catch it, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Some of them did. Just to be clear, sexual immorality is not the only sin. This is just a common one that people fall into, right? Why is that? Well, God made the world on purpose that sex is awesome but he said, no, sex is to be used in this way, not in this way. So God gets to set the rules, but it is this incredible, mystical, magical thing that God's introduced in the universe. There are other awesome things like that too, right? Like food, food is fantastic. Isn't it crazy that God made us to eat food and not just plug our uh, batteries in at night, you know? Like he's made us to eat food and food is glorious. But anybody here struggle with misusing food? I know I do. Sexuality is the same thing. It's incredible, it's glorious. It's a gift from God, but we misuse it all kinds of things like that in life. Relationship, they're wonderful. We need them. And then we fall into codependency and weirdness and dysfunction. There are all kinds of things that are good gifts from God. And God says, no, use it this way. We have to relearn to run the race of life. Jesus gets to tell us how to use these gifts that he's given to us. So it goes on and he says, 23,000 fell in a single day. We must, not be put, uh, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and we're destroyed by serpents. This is where we're getting into the uncomfortable stuff of like God striking people down in the Old Testament. Let me finish it and then we'll talk more about that. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happen to them as an example. So a type, again, a pattern for us, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So just a quick aside for those of you who wonder if we're living in the end times or not, Yes, we are, and it started in the first century, right? Is it the end of the end yet? I don't, I don't know. Jesus tells me, what should I do? I should be faithful. I should trust him. I should serve others. That, that's how I stay ready. But the end times, the end of the ages, Paul says started back here. The New Testament says this again and again. The end of the ages started at the resurrection. That's the dividing line of history. Everything changed. Are there some... Some more things that are gonna happen? Oh yeah, there's gonna be some wrapping up of things to come. But the end of the ages began here. He's saying, be clear, understand that they face some of the same things that you face, even those of you that, that live in the end of the ages, even those of us that live in the glorious days of the resurrection, the Christ, the promised fulfillments of Jesus. And so we see these Old Testament painful examples of people being struck down for their disobedience and their unfaithfulness to God. And I want to admit to you, these are hard for me. When I do the Bible in a Year program and I'm reading these stories, I want you to know that I don't like magically put on my preacher hat and like, scary stories don't bother me anymore. You know, like those, stary, those stories freak me out too. So I just want you to know that. Those stories freak me out. And I'm trying to learn to run after the right things. So I'm like you, trying to be a disciple of Jesus and I'm following Jesus. And when I read those stories, I'm like, what about these stories, Jesus? Like, I'm not sure what to do with all of these things. Here's one thing that I think might help. This isn't all the answers that are out there, but this is one answer. In some ways, I think it's better to see with clarity when something is poison than just have the slow poison, right? So in some ways, I'm envious (laughs) of these Old Testament people. Because like today, we don't see those kinds of events happen very often, do we? And we're lulled into thinking, it's fine. It's no big deal. It never hurts anybody. As this poison of sin slowly destroys us from the inside out. The word grumble is used here. He says, don't grumble like they did. And a lot of you are thinking, oh no. Like I'm doing okay staying clear of sexual immorality. But he's, th- he's throwing in grumblers here too, right? As I say many times, uh, the Bible is like an equal opportunity afflicter of the comfortable, right? Those of you from a non-religious background, you might worry more about sexual immorality. Those of us from a religious background, he just nailed us with grumbling, right? Grumbling's not okay either. I want to be clear, we want to foster an environment, I think the scriptures fosters an environment of actual honesty, right? It says, confess your sins to God, he'll forgive you. Confess your sins one to another, pray for each other, you may be healed. It says in Romans, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So we're we're honest, right? He's not saying lie about stuff when he says don't grumble. Grumbling is this kind of shaking our fists at God, saying, God, I don't want you. I want the other stuff. Give me back my sin, God, right? Like shaking our fist at him in that way. And I think C.S. Lewis has a great definition of grumbling here. This is from The Great Divorce, a great book, weird kind of fantasy book that he wrote, but it really gets into the psychology of hell. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish that you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer stop it. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there's something growing, which will be hell, unless it's nipped in the bud. Lewis is trying to wake us up, the same way Paul is trying to wake us up. He's saying, watch out, right? Like hell is not this arbitrary thing out there. Hell is here, like we're already in hell, it's in us. He's saying, run to Jesus. Jesus is where the, the rivers of living water flow forth. Run to him. Run to him. So how do we learn to run? How do, how do we actually learn this in real life, right? I threw you under the bus if you struggle with grumbling, if you struggle with sexual immorality. Like, we all struggle, right? And so I just want to clarify that. We all struggle. We all have these difficulties. We'll see this in the third point that... Everything we struggle with is common. There's nothing special. Like none of us have like a special sin problem. We're, we're all sinners, right? So I wanted to clarify that because he's been calling out sexual immorality a lot. Um, and those that are trapped in, in cycles of sexual immorality, sometimes because of just cultural pressures can feel like, oh, this is, this is the worst of sins, right? So traditionalists make it like it's worse than other sins. And so then non-traditionalists react and say, oh, it doesn't matter at all. Like that's how we'll deal with that shame. No, the way we deal with shame is through the gospel. The gospel says, no sin can keep you from Jesus. But Jesus moved through your sin and came after you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to stop and say, now that you've stopped, now I love you. That's bad news. The good news is Jesus saw you and he saw me sinning. And he says, I'm gonna come after them. I'm gonna die for them. I'm gonna pursue them. I'm gonna take their sin upon myself. I'm gonna live the perfect life. I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna be abused. I'm gonna give up my full rights as God in heaven. I'm gonna suffer. Jesus did that for you and for me. That's the good news. And that breaks the shame cycle. So the other way to break the shame cycle is to just deny that it's there, right? We lie about it. Oh, there's no sin. That's what 1 John talks about. There's two ways to deal with sin. You can confess it and ask Jesus to deal with it, or you can lie and say it's not there. What I'm recommending is to take it to Jesus. And he breaks the sin cycle, he breaks the shame cycle. And then you're like, okay, Jesus, you've forgiven me. Now I'm gonna obey you, right? And what happens? Like a couple of days into your obedience? Or maybe like a couple of hours into your new obedience? What what happens? You stumble, right? You fall. And what's the answer to that? Well, there are two answers. I mean, one is, okay, get up and obey him again, right? But you gotta break that shame cycle again. It's a cycle and it works together. So you have to go back to Jesus again. And you're like, Jesus, I still need your grace. I didn't stop needing it the first day that I trusted you. I need your grace today. I'm gonna need your grace in five minutes. I'm gonna need your grace in two more hours. I'm gonna need your grace on my deathbed. And Jesus's grace is what stops the shame cycle or interrupts it as it keeps coming back again and again in our life. So we keep running back to Jesus and like, man, Jesus, you still love, like you still love me? And then we obey again. And so it's this cycle of grace and obedience, grace and obedience. We never give up on it. We never leave grace. We stumble forward in obedience. One minute success, the next minute failure. We stumble forward obeying Jesus, running the race, pursuing him because he's taken hold of us. And so we need to work through this cycle. It's important to name the struggle. Again, we talk about this in community. We confess our sins to Jesus and he will forgive us. That breaks the shame cycle, but we also have to confess it to other human beings. Doesn't mean you have to tell everybody everywhere all the time, everything you struggle with, right? But you need to get some people in your life that can pray for you and support you as you try to walk in obedience. It's not easy. We can't do it on our own. We need to learn to run and to pursue him. And that takes us to the last point. Our coach helps us to run. We have a coach that helps us. And some of you had terrible coaches. I actually had some decent coaches. Uh, didn't have a dad around growing up, but I had some coaches that were some godly men, and that was really encouraging and helpful for me in my life. Um, I want you to know that no matter how bad your coaches were growing up, our coach is the perfect coach, right? He's the one that loves us. He's the one that took every burden on his back that he's ever asked us to, to bear. He bore it for himself. So we have this coach that enters in to the race with us. Verse 12, he says it this way, therefore, lest uh, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So he's going back to that theme of complacency, right? Don't, don't think you're fine. Take heed, pay attention, like wake up. Are you really fine on your own or, or do you need Jesus? Do you need to continue to desperately cling to and pursue Jesus? Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I think Paul here is uh, tackling both shame and pride, right? Like, don't think that you're fine, you still need Jesus. But also don't be overwhelmed with shame. There's no temptation facing you that's not normal to everybody else, right? Again, don't fall into that, that trap of like, oh, you don't understand, I have, I have this really deep, deep, deep shame that Jesus can't handle. I'm such a great sinner. I'm too much for Jesus. <laughs> None of you are too much for Jesus. None of us are. And so don't fall into that trap of like, oh no, this is, this is, it's worse for me. It's different for me. No, I'm gonna read it again. No temptation, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you hear that? We could fall off the horse in all different directions with this, right? Like God's faithful. What does that mean? You'll never be tempted again. No, he didn't say that. God is faithful. He's going to be with you. He's going to show you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's the tension that we live in, right? Right? Jesus, help me get out of this. And we think getting out of it means then it'll never bother me again. No, the, the getting away is, is the way of endurance, enduring that temptation. So at some level, it's a running away from it. You're like, see you later, but it's still chasing you. <laughs> He's giving you the way of escape, which is also the way of endurance. So know that, that Jesus meets you in the temptation. Uh, a way I like to say it is this stop feeling sorry for yourself that you have a unique temptation that nobody else understands and nobody else has ever run into. He says, No, we're, we're just all humans here doing our human thing. We're all struggling. And God's the one that'll make the difference. It's not your unique temptation finding the unique magic formula to fight that temptation. It's Jesus, your coach, is going to help you to work through this situation. Ask Jesus to meet you in the mess and help you see the way out. He's telling me, there's a way of escape. I'm gonna give you a way of escape, but we need Jesus to come into the mess with us and then ask friends for help, just as I was saying earlier. We need friends to help us on the journey. So no temptation has overtaken you. That's not common. God's faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. With the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, there's the summary verse again, flee from idolatry run for your life, knowing that God is faithful. He'll meet you there. He'll help you. Verse 15, I speak as a sensible, as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves, what I say. He's saying, hey, check this out. This is, this is what I'm saying. You can check me. Just like when I'm reading the text, I'm like, hey, is this, is this what the text says? This is not me speaking. This is what the text is saying. Paul's saying the same thing. Yeah, check this out. Test me. Is this sensible? Does this make sense of the world that we live in and the good news of a Jesus who is for us? Our coach helps us to run. One of my favorite examples of this is from the Olympics way back. I think it was like maybe 92. I've told this story many times. So if you've been here much, you've heard it before. It's so good though, you're gonna be glad I told you again. Um, So it's Barcelona Olympics, Derek Redmond. It's a 400 meter runner. Uh, Love this story because I ran the 400 meters and almost died multiple times trying to do that. Um, Derek's running the race and just this you know, horrible explosion in his leg where he, he rips a muscle, tears a muscle, and he just goes down on the track. He crumples, and of course, he's sobbing because you know this is his dream, and he's been battling back and forth between injury and health, and his dream has arrived, and it all crumbles in one second. But you know what? His dad is watching in the stands. His dad is there with him, I don't know if you know this about the Olympics, but the people in the stands are not supposed to come onto the track. It's not how it works. They've got security guards. They've got railings, right? There's all kinds of barriers. His dad, you know, pudgy middle-aged guy, pushes people out of the way. He's climbing over people. He's running down the stands. He jumps over the railing. He pushes past the security guards. He runs out on the track and he picks up his son and he carries him to the finish line. Got a picture of them limping across together. And of course, Derek Redmond didn't win that race that day, but this is like one of those stories and one of these scenes that impacted millions of people for a lifetime. Not just because it's this beautiful picture of a father that loves his son, right? That's, that's what dad's supposed to be like, because it's a picture of what God is like with us. We have this perfect heavenly father. We have this perfect big brother, Jesus. We have this perfect counselor, Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. You know what that word literally in John chapter 14 is? He's the one that comes alongside, puts his arm around you. We're the presence of God with us. He picks us up. He's gonna carry us. He's gonna be there with you. Don't forget that. And Paul's embedded this image, even in this text already, as he referenced back to Exodus 17. So we'll we'll finish with this. As we're challenged to run for our life, we need to remember again that we're doing it because of what Jesus has done for us. We're not running to get Jesus to love us. We're, we're running because Jesus loves us. are like, Jesus, you love me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow you anywhere. That's what we're saying. And so Paul talks about this rock that followed them, that provided water for them. And the Exodus 17 story is is really pretty cool if you read it and study it more in depth. Ed Clowney talks about this and Tim Keller and other, other authors that are smarter than me have talked about this text before. But as you read the story in Exodus 17, it's where the people of God want to stone Moses for leading them out into the desert. Moses is complaining against God. And when you first read that, it's so jarring and shocking, you know, all this violent stuff in the Old Testament. They're gonna stone him. This is crazy, you know, more of this... Old Testament craziness, we can miss what's actually going on, right? Stoning was the formal way they brought people to the death penalty. And so we can read this in courtroom language. The people that were saved out of the Exodus are now filing formal charges against Moses and against God. And Moses tells God about it. And God says, okay, well, we're gonna have a court proceeding then. He says, okay, Moses, you come out to this stone table. And you bring your staff, your judge's gavel. And let's hear the charges on both sides. And the people accuse God of not caring for them and Moses of misleading them. And they hear the charges and God answers them. And God says, Moses, I want you to take your judge's gavel and strike this stone, strike the rock. And as they're starving in the desert, (laughs) rivers of living water flow out of this rock. And it's a courtroom picture of God saying, I, it says very clearly in the text that Yahweh, God was present there in the rock. He was standing there. God is struck by Moses. Yahweh is struck by Moses and rivers of living water flows out. It's such a beautiful picture of what God ultimately finished on the cross. Where God was struck for us and by us, where Jesus was struck, where Jesus died in our place and rivers of living water flowed out. Jesus provided for us through his death, through his resurrection. And Paul's like, run to Jesus. Don't run to those other saviors. They just wanna enslave you. They just wanna kill you. Run to Jesus. He will give you life. We pray for us. God, we thank you that you gave yourself for us. This story is so good God, will you shape us by it? Will you change us as we conform ourselves more and more to your image? Will you make us new? Will you show us your presence? Help us not to just go through the motions of being a part of the people that God has saved, but help us to wonder at you and your goodness to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.